Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome everyone to Convergence and our Soulvox Roundtable. I'm joined again today by my luminous co-host, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning, John. And hi, C. Lutmers. Hello. And I wanted to bring something. It's a, this topic is a little bit heavy, but I think we're up to it. And, and, you know, for those of you in the audience, this is something that I want to encourage you to, to wrestle with a little bit, too. And it comes down to what do you do when confronted by what appears to be evil? And I say appears to be evil because, well, we're often in the presence of influences both local and global that that feel like or seem like or they could be described as evil right these influences like discrimination cruelty bullying disregard for the environment and so on these are these are influences that seem to create suffering and this came to me uh, as a topic because I'm involved in and attentive to the the political campaign here in the United States, in particular the one for president. And I wrestle with what I see as some really high contrast uh, candidates who, uh, you know, the answer to me is clear who the right person would be. But it's it's also very clear to other people what the right person, who the right person should be. And, and then they come to a different conclusion. So, I, I want to try to understand um, how to approach these these high contrast issues where it seems obvious to to me or to you or to someone what the right answer is, and yet there's there's another equally uh, strong position on the other side, and ask the question: Is there do, can we really say that such such a high contrast position to to your own is evil. Is there evil in the world? And what are we experiencing 
um, should we try to fix that thing that appears to be broken or or do we instead try to change the hearts of those who are caught up in what we consider brokenness and are we really is it really our obligation to try to fix what's broken um, how do we know it's really broken versus something that we just disagree with so if I could invite you guys to join me in this uh, let's start with with the highest contrast question which is do you think there's actually something that that we could call evil that exists in the world? Does, does evil exist? John, this is Mildred Lynn. Well, of course it is, because the only other person here is high C. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, was just say, I was just saying that to reaffirm that I know who I was. <laughs> excellent. Well, I, I know it's a very shocking topic, so we have to, do have to ground ourselves. So... so in terms of their question, is there evil in the world? From my perspective, I would call it non-life-supporting energy. So if you had a continuum of non-life-supporting energy and life-supporting energy with love being at the top of the life-supporting energy and potentially evil being at the other point on mm-hmm. the continuum, okay. in that context, there's everything you could imagine between one and the other, vibrationally speaking. That's my perspective. So is there non-life-supporting energy in the world that's very extreme? I would say yes, just as there's life-supporting energy in the world that is very extreme in the love part. Well, so I want to like approach that term that you used, non-life-supporting energy. Yeah. Um, does that... Is there is it implicit in that that you think that something that's not life supporting is not good? In in the context that I look at things, non life supporting is an energy that would drain you, that would take away from, and it wouldn't be empowering. Well, death is death is definitely something that's a natural part of our of our living reality. Does that mean that we would I mean, do we want to push away things like death, or does that fall in a different category? Well, I would put that in a different category because death is is simply a function of nature, and nature goes in cycles. Things are born, things grow up, things mature, things transition into another form. Can you distinguish between um, death and and non life supporting energy? Yeah, because for me, non-life-supporting energy isn't part of a natural cycle that empowers. So I think you're looking at death as taking away or non-life-supporting, where I'm looking at at death as a transition, a transition into something new. Well, okay. Um, could could a non-life-supporting energy be of be a tool? Uh, or a channel for transformation? Well, hypothetically, everything can be a channel for transformation if we choose that it's a tool for our transformation. So, so, and, and this sort of gets to like to the Buddhist um, notion that really you don't want to you don't want to mess with anything because uh, it has its own karma. 
Well, I would love to pass the baton over to High C right now. Actually, He's uh, much more uh, fluent in uh, Buddhism than I am. Yeah, I see. I, this is I kind of did want to direct this towards you. Is there like what? How do we deal with that? Well, because as I was thinking of what is evil, and then you started talking about the Buddhist aspect and all of that, if for me, my thought around what is evil is the idea of when I, I think evil only exists in humans. Because I think that evil, if we were going to try to define it, and I'm not even saying that I necessarily think that something that what we always think of as evil actually exists, but if we were going to define it, it's when there are actions done to intentionally harm or disrupt or negatively affect another's life, life energy, you know, from what Mildred was saying, um, to, to inflict harm or to in some way do something that is against the will and choice of the other simply for someone else to be able to Gain and gain can have a very broad meaning there because gain could just mean political gain. It could mean that I am able to take over the land that they have, you know, or whatever. But that I think is where I would go to with the idea of just what is evil. So if we if if we go with that sort of that angle, that first of all, that evil only exists in humans, right? We'll say then that the predator choosing to take the life of the prey is not evil, right? Because I don't think that we, in nature, I don't think we see that done in a malicious, I just want to kill for the sake of killing way. Well, okay, so let's go then into human culture and say the idea that I want to coercively convert you to my belief system, whether it be religious or political. Um, and I say to you that I want to do that both for the greater good and for your own good. And I actually believe that. Is that an act of evil? Is that an evil act? If If there is intentional harm that is then done, then I would say it crosses the line into evil action. Okay, so... so the belief itself is not evil. The belief itself is not evil, it's... Uh, okay. It's the that's, action. that's interesting. Okay. So, we can um, responsibly, I guess, say, we can responsibly tolerate the beliefs of others that are radically different from ours and and actually resonate with us as something that there's something wrong with that that there's something that that should that belief be pursued or um, embodied would create suffering or loss or be non-life sustaining we can we can allow that to be present in the world without panicking or without without feeling the need to um to intervene 
that that's not that 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 feeling or or belief is not intrinsically evil but when it takes form in our reality it becomes something that we should be prepared and accountable perhaps to recognize as evil or non-life sustaining or something and then potentially take action John you know what I love what you're doing with this and I'll tell you I had a similar conversation with myself which is always very enlightening (laughs) (laughs) so if you're on Facebook or if you read the news, you very quickly become overwhelmed with every aspect of non-supporting life force energy. There's lots going on. There's yeah. lots good going on, but there's also a lot of disruptive things going on. So it occurred to me, I'm one person. Maybe it's not in my highest interest to become involved with all of these issues. Although all of these issues are important, it might not be dovetailed in harmony with my life force interest, my, excuse me, my life purpose, what mm-hmm. I came here to do, right. who I came here to be. And that was a light bulb going on in my head. I immediately felt a huge sense of relief. So then the question came into the picture, and this is the question, well, if it's not necessary or in my highest interest to be involved in or take action regarding all these issues, how do I discern which ones are appropriate for me mm-hmm. in terms of what's in alignment with my highest interest? And it came down to going into my heart, going into my spirit. Some people do muscle testing. Some people could use a pendulum you would use a discernment tool either in your body, the body itself, or if you need a tool to to help read what the body is saying. And that's what I do. So if I come across an issue, and basically it's saying, well, really, Mildred, it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. So if I come across an issue that's speaking to my head and I'm becoming involved with it, I simply breathe check with my heart and my spirit to see if this is something that I should be interested in. And is it something I should be aware of? Is it something I could learn? Is it something I need to observe? Is it something I need to research? Is it something I need to take action on? Mm. So there's a, so there are the five questions I ask myself. Right. So, so there's a, that's very, that's a very rich um, uh, domain of, of action, right? Uh, you get to, determine whether you need to be involved at all and and whether you need to be involved at various levels of uh, engagement up to and including taking taking action in response to um, is there a um, ever I guess ever a sense of urgently needing to fix another besides you yeah, besides the cell. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and folks, that's happened on more than one occasion. That woman felt that about me, for me, on my behalf. Um, the, the, you know, I it's like I just I look at this presidential campaign, and 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 it doesn't have to be the presidential campaign. It could be any number of other geopolitical, you know, large scale issues, and. I feel on the one hand that there's this potential to 
to fall back into a kind of powerlessness and say, well, you know, it's really not, um, there's, it's not my problem to solve, but I, but I can do what I can. I can participate in some, in some way, at least with my vote, you know, getting educated and, um, and being wise. But then I realized that, you know, I, I also have influence. I have, um, I have a personal network. I have people that um, look at what I say and take something from it. And I wonder how much obligation I have to, and do I ever have obligation to speak loudly enough and persuasively enough to change other people's hearts and minds, or is it just none of my business? And because it's the presidential election, right, this, of course, it's, this affects everyone. It certainly affects me, but it also affects all of my neighbors. So what's the, would you, would you um, suggest, Mildred Lynn, those the same five questions in that regard? Always. 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 Because is it your head that wants to participate in this large message, or is it your heart? Mm-hmm. And... To me, and High C may agree, or he may have somewhat something else to offer. But that's how, for me, that's the best place to start. You know, is it even any of your business? And if it is, what does that look like? And if you perform that role, your your piece of the equation, I feel that you would be amazed at how the sense of urgency will will just dissolve. Because you're in alignment and you're getting that contentment and that satisfaction and that fulfillment of knowing that you are, you've made the choice to honor the role. That's the opportunity or potential for you. At least that's been my experience. I don't get riled up. Hmm. When I didn't know what to do with this stuff, I used to get riled up and full of angst Mm because I always had a sense of urgency or I need to be doing something. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing, but you know, blah, 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 blah. The antidote to that was going into my heart and my spirit to get clarity, and mm. then from there, seeing what expression would be appropriate. So that's my two cents worth. Hi, mm. C. How, how do how do you approach these challenges and and the discernment for what kind of action to take? Well, to go back to something that you were talking about a minute ago, um, Having these things there allows us the chance to enter into dialogue with others and to move from tolerance to acceptance and from judgment to understanding. And so speaking, it was interesting how you asked your question about speaking because you said, you know, do I have an obligation to speak loud enough and persuasive enough? Mm. As if what what obligation do I have to in some way bring other people around to my way of thinking? Yes, exactly. And that, I think, is not where our intention behind speaking should come from. Okay. If we see something that we need to speak about to, to offer our side or perspective, then we should do so not with the intention or the expectation that the other person will now come around to my way of thinking, but simply to make sure that something that needed to be spoken or needed to be pointed out has had that happen. So, you know, it's like if, 
it's like the classic question. If somebody makes a racist joke at a party, mm-hmm. you know, do you not laugh, but just sit quietly in order to not create a ruckus? Or do you speak up and say something about, and it also is in how we say it. It's not about saying, you know, that's inappropriate. You shouldn't say that because we're immediately casting judgment on the other person based on our perspective. But we can say, I find that uncomfortable. I find that unacceptable. I find that, you know, mean or whatever. So we we present our side of it, which perhaps someone hearing that, because really what that goes to more is often being more persuasive by people seeing us simply walk our talk. Catch that on the fourth Thursdays of each month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> by being able to see us simply saying, this is, this is where I live in, and I uh, abide by that for myself, can be more persuasive than trying to bludgeon the person over the head with argument, judgment, convincing because that'll just make them more defensive and perhaps entrench themselves in, oh, please, there was nothing wrong with what I just said. It was just a joke. Mm. So there's so there's two things that I want to tease out here. Um, one is the idea of persuasion, and the other is the, is the notion of judgment. And I want to just ta- take persuasion first. We do have the gifts, being sentient beings and, and having the power of language, we do have the gift of persuasion. And the question, I guess, is should we, should we not use that or should we consider that it is one of the tools that we have to help make the world a better place? Well, we should certainly use it. However, there's a difference between persuasion and manipulation or coercion. Uh, okay. And persuasion says, I'm going to enter into dialogue with you and I'm going to offer you my perspective. And by being able to hear that clarified by perhaps presenting something in a way or something that someone has never heard may end up being persuasive to them to reconsider the way that they think and maybe shift or change in some small way where their position was. But we also have to be willing to give them space and opportunity to present to their side and not assume that we can't be persuaded by anything they would have to say. So, so a, willing, a willingness to actually engage in a level discussion where I'm willing to be influenced by you as certainly and as, as profoundly as I would like you to be influenced by me. Yes. And and because we're, if you take the presidential thing that you're talking about, the the thing that I think people react to that they would see as evil or whatever, depending on what side they're on, is if someone hears a dissenting or opposite perspective and then is taking action to try to shut that down or silence and shut that up. And that's not dialogue. And that's also not persuasion. They're not persuading. They're not saying, I'm going to get up here and I'm going to give an amazing speech that perhaps will persuade you to understand where I'm coming from and why maybe my, what I'm offering here as an idea, as a direction, as a policy, whatever, would be the, the, the best thing to consider. 
You know, that's not what they're doing. And we want to make sure that on a small individual level, we're not simply acting like the political candidate that we don't like and that we think is evil because of the stances that they take or the the methods that they employ. Because we can actually, if we look at ourselves, find we may be speaking or taking actions or using methods that are actually very similar, if not the same. But of course, it seems perfectly okay and perfectly right for us because surely what I'm saying is right and therefore it's okay to use those versus the other person is wrong, so they shouldn't be using those. Yeah, this is this is the uh, treacherous territory uh, because well, for, because of judgment. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. Mildred Lynn, how do you feel about persuasion? I feel exactly the way High C feels. I thought he did a great job explaining it. I don't have anything to add. Mm, okay. All right. And the other thing I wanted to touch on is the 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 territory of judgment, which insinuates itself into our experience of one another all the time and how we approach someone who feels fundamentally or experiences life fundamentally differently from us, how we experience them, and how do we relinquish judgment about what they're doing when we perceive what they're doing to be a source of suffering or uh, uh, darkness or non-life-sustaining stuff. What do we do? How do we manage that part of our humanness? The, the, the fact that judgment rises up and we, we make a judgment about how they're living and how it's impacting us. John, for me, that's a big question, as we, as we all know. For me, my nature is always balance, harmony, and trying to find a common area where we agree on something, even if it is is the sky blue? Yeah, we can agree on the sky is blue today, even if it's at that very basic level. So I find when areas are non-life supporting, sometimes people are entrenched in their beliefs, which is a different ball of wax. But then sometimes people aren't that entrenched, but they just don't know another way to look at it for their consideration. Mm-hmm. So I find that if, you, if I'm looking at the judgment area, if I find that something really makes me feel, oh, you know, I can't believe that's their perspective mm-hmm. as, a, as a human being, what I, where I naturally go, where I train myself to go, is wondering how another perspective can be offered for their consideration. Now, it's always their choice. We all have a choice. But if it was in my highest interest and on my life path, that would be my starting point. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And I see, how about you? Well, to me, the difference is always going to come down to whether they're taking action that is impinging on another or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so allowing them to believe what they believe and accepting the fact that other people believe differently than I do is something I have to work on for myself rather than trying to force others to just have everyone believe the way I do for me to feel comfortable in the world. And, and, you know, I I think there's a difference between judgment and discernment because judgment implies that we're saying whether something or someone else is right or wrong. Right. And, and of course, we're basing that on where we're coming from. Yeah, on our value system. Uh, You know, 
if they're taking action in some way that is creating harm for one or more others, then there is time, then it's time for, you know, myself or for other people to take action. Mm. So, you know, if, since this was a recent issue for people, some people, you know, if the, the, the neighbors down the street are vehemently opposed to gay marriage and, you know, the, and then it passes, if, if they're not doing anything, even, even if when I happen to pass them on the street, they, you know, sneer or whatever, or, or even say something, you know, it doesn't mean that I have to say something back. I don't have to engage in that kind of argument or, or negative interaction. But if they then are going to the city council to try to pass an ordinance that, you know, gay couples can't live in this neighborhood. <laughs> right. Okay. Then it's time for action because they're doing something that is impinging on other people and doing it because they say what I believe is right. Therefore I'm going to make other people not have access to, or to suffer as a result of what I believe. So there's a, there's, so we, it does ultimately come back to whether we perceive that another's actions are creating suffering or in Mildred Lynn's case, um, creating non-life supporting energy. And, and that's a matter of interpretation at at the end of the day. That's a, that's something that we all have to get to, we have to reconcile within our, within our, within our own perspectives and souls. And, uh, the challenge is that, intrinsic to that is is that we create we create judgments around the things that we value um so you know i mean like the, an easy contrast would be um somebody who values economic progress over environmental protection um they're going to say that see how environmental regulation is going to is going to create suffering because people will not have the same economic prosperity and alternatively somebody who thinks the environment is more important than economic growth they're going to see um limitations on um on economic output pollution or whatever as actually a benefit and you know so we we come we do come back to values and judgments and I guess the question resolves itself only in the heart where you say, okay, this is my battle to fight and this is how I'm, how my heart is encouraging me to, to engage that battle. Is that kind of what I've heard from, from you guys? Well, for me, John, it always is, I'm just like a one rotation person on the trampoline. <laughs> All I know how to do is a backflip. <laughs> Everything for me always goes back to what's in alignment with my highest purpose. So you need to have clarity there, a clear channel. Yeah. And some way to discern that channel because if not, any way the wind blows, 
based on the amount of information that we're always exposed to. Anyway, the wind blows can wreak havoc with your own internal weather system. Right. Yeah. Good point. Hi, C. Do you want to offer a last thought on this? Well, just in thinking of what you were just saying, if I was involved in a political cause that I really believed in, and yet the uh, vote for the legislation goes a different way, mm-hmm. I can continue to, you know, be active in, in in trying to fight for what it is that I believe in, but I don't need to then cause other people to suffer who supported the opposite position just because their side won. Mm. It, it doesn't mean I don't keep fighting for what I believe in, it, but it does mean I'm not going to now take harmful action towards others as a result of things not having gone my way. This, this is a very interesting terrain for people. Uh, and uh i you know i didn't i didn't think we were going to resolve it in this conversation but i did want to bring it up for folks to contemplate because we do have we we are in a world that's full of information and full of contrasts and how we choose to engage those contrasts says a lot about the how the world looks when when we're engaging in those contrasts and how the world looks when we're done. And I think for me, uh, I challenge myself all the time to relinquish my preconceived notions of what's right and what's wrong, to relinquish my judgment, not to relinquish my discernment, but to relinquish my judgment. And in particular, um, to pull back from my judgment of people because people are so mercurial, they're so changeable, as Mildred Lynn pointed out, offering them another perspective for their consideration often can work wonders. Um, So just, uh, I guess, maybe a a kinder, gentler approach to engaging people and issues that are uh, in contrast to my own perspective is what I would offer to, uh, as my way of walking through this kind of challenging terrain. Yeah, and John, one final thing that everybody couldn't benefit from is developing the skill sets and learning the verbiage to use to engage people in these conversations, not in a manipulative way or or a way that's not like supporting. But the more I experience and the more I observe, one takeaway is once you are able to introduce the verbiage or the skill sets or the environment that supports harmony for you know a harm, harmonized view of perspectives or mm-hmm. whatever things tend to get better mm. and a lot of what a lot of what i found is that people get stuck they just really get stuck. They don't know which way to go. And that's stuck that builds up. And that's the environment for judgment. That's yeah. the environment for other, you know, other things to kind of creep in there. Mm-hmm. So if anybody was listening and they're asking themselves, well, what can I do? That kind of goes across the board. It, I, I feel that it would be a worthwhile endeavor to educate yourself on how to bring these 
as you would say, contrasting opinions or or perspectives together. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great uh, that's a, that's a, a great recommendation. Is that giving yourself the opportunity to learn how to do it better, how to engage more productively without bringing an agenda to the to to the engagement. Yeah, that's good. Okay, well, uh, Mildred Lynn and Hi-C, thank you very much for taking this journey with me on a rather challenging topic. Uh, I, as always, your insights are delightful and informative, so thanks for joining me. My pleasure, John. Have a good day. Have a good show. And we'll be back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This iconic phrase has always captured me. What does it mean? Why did Jesus say it? How does it apply to me? I've pondered it for quite a while, and recently I came up with some answers. I'd like to share with you. When I first heard this verse, I wasn't very happy about it. I mean, who wants to be meek? And what does that mean anyways? I've always been a hard charger, a type A personality, a go-getter. The last thing I wanted to be was considered meek. But that's what the scripture says, so what to make of it? I thought a lot about what it might mean to be meek. I always considered meekness to be associated with weakness, but they're not synonyms. So let's look at the definitions and origin of the word. According to Merriam-Webster, meek has three definitions. The first is enduring injury with patience and without resentment. The second is deficient in spirit and courage. The third is not violent or strong. We get a further clue by looking at its origin from Middle English and it's of Scandinavian origin. The Old Norse word mjuker, which meant gentle. Gentle. Truth be told, it, it took me a while before I consulted a dictionary. I actually wanted to feel my way to the answer. But because I was always confusing meek with weak, I decided to try a different route. I actually looked at the opposite of meek in an attempt to understand who the meek were. So who were the not meek? The more I thought about it, the more I came to the conclusion that the not meek were the arrogant. Those who, without thought or consciousness of the damage that they do to others, attempt to exert their will as if it were right and righteous. 
I think there are two categories of the non-meek or the arrogant. There are those who hold economic power. Basically, those who can do more of what they want because they control the means of action, the means of production, the flow of capital, the ability to influence the kind of scarcity others experience. They do what they want because, because they can. And the impact of their actions on others is, well, secondary. Arrogance in this flavor infects the rich. Not all rich are arrogant, to be sure, but there's that old story about a camel fitting through the eye of a needle to consider. Another category of non-meek are the self-righteous, those who would assert moral superiority over another and attempt to impose it. These people are not meek because they are not gentle. They are, in fact, quite violent. Not always physically, although history is full of physically violent religious zealots, but always psychically. To impose your morals or your value system onto another, that's a violent act, to impose your morals and your value system. That's a violent act. Gentle, confident expressions of one's morality is not violent. Coercive, punitive imposition is violent. Very definitely not meek. So we have the rich and the self-righteous as the non-meek. Why is it important to know? Well, because we're talking about an inheritance. So we have to do a reasonable job of assessing who the not-meek are as a way of understanding who is in possession of the earth today. The meek haven't yet inherited it, so it must be in the possession of some other someone or someones. Now let's look. Who is really in positions of power today? Who are the putative functional owners of the earth? Does it match our ascription to the arrogant? Let's see. Corporate titans? Check. Religious demagogues? Check. Political manipulators? Check. Looks like the arrogant, who either control the means of production with only secondary concern for the health and thriving of the whole, or those who care about the whole only in as much as they can get the whole to serve their own agendas, fit the bill as the current holders of power on the planet. And if we look honestly, we see that they create a rather profound class of meek, those who endure suffering, sometimes patiently, sometimes without resentment. Often, they're dispirited, heartbroken, and as a consequence, lacking courage. Not strong enough to resist. So it makes sense that, currently, the meek are not the possessors of the earth, and that the non-meek, as I've identified them, are. So, what's next? Shall inherit. So here's where it gets a little bit interesting. The meek shall inherit. What, what is an inheritance? It's something you get when the one currently in possession of it dies. It's not a gift. It's an inheritance. So in the flow of things, the meek inherit the earth when the arrogant, self-righteous, and judgmental pass away. Now, why would Jesus suggest that the meek 
would inherit something? Are, are not the arrogant, self-righteous, and judgmental going to be with us always? I think the clue to the inheritance piece is pretty simple, if a bit obscure. Jesus doesn't say when the meek will inherit the earth, but he does say inherit, not take, not seize, not be gifted. And inheritance comes on the heels of death. So what would make the arrogant, self-righteous, and judgmental all die off? Well, maybe it's this simple. Unsustainability. We have reached a time in human history where certain activities must draw to a close. Not because we've come to our senses or matured necessarily, but because we've expanded and empowered ourselves to such a degree that the carrying capacity of the planet is now strained, even fracturing. The behaviors in which we engage that, for example, pollute our groundwater, elevate the global temperature, pollute the air, pollute the soil, mess with seed propagation, and the list goes on and on. These activities are simply not sustainable. They cannot continue unabated. That which is unsustainable ultimately cannot be sustained. Will not be sustained. This earthship, this system, has certain properties that are quite simply limited. In certain important ways, it's a closed system, a zero-sum game. And much of the reason arrogance has lasted as long as it has in human history is because our arrogance, historically, has been buffered by the hugeness and fecundity of this planet and its biosphere. No more. We humans, we precocious humans, have become so powerful. So powerful. We're so powerful now that our unsustainable arrogance is coming home to roost. We are, literally, racing towards death. We've already triggered a kind of mass extinction of plant and animal species all around the world. And it looks like it's accelerating. We did that. We did that. We're collapsing our very life support system, impoverishing the biosphere. One way or another, it won't continue. Either we'll figure out that we have to live sustainably, or we'll perish, along with a lot of other critters. We've found the limits of Spaceship Earth. Which brings me to the last part of Jesus' quote, the Earth. Jesus says, we'll inherit the Earth. But it won't be the Earth we see right now. It'll be the Earth that's left, left over, after the arrogant have, quite literally, finished with it. As it's going now, it'll be less fertile, less balanced, less diverse than what our great-grandparents enjoyed. So, you might be thinking this is kind of a downer of a reflection, but there is an upside. The thing is, we can either continue to be arrogant, judgmental, and self-righteous, greedy, selfish, and unconscious, or we can choose to step away from that unconscious behavioral model because we see the damage we're doing and the inevitable unsustainability of it all and choose to live sustainably, choose to invest ourselves in developing a model of living that is sustainable. Sustainable. Gentle. Meek. If we want to inherit a beautiful garden, 
we all need to step away from the conflagration. Stop feeding it. Stop participating in it. Stop ignoring the brick wall we're accelerating into. We need to recognize our kinship with everything and everyone else and start acting gently. I, for one, want to inherit this earth in my lifetime. I would love for unsustainability to become universally vulgar. So vulgar that civilized people just don't live that way. And by the way, violence isn't going to work. You know, Jesus didn't say, the meek shall conquer or colonize. He said, inherit. We can't get to the garden through yet another spin on and through unsustainable conflagration. Conflict breeds arrogance and self-righteousness. And besides, Jesus had his own take on that anyways. Blessed are the peacemakers. We'll be right back. Next up, I want to introduce you to Lincoln Cannon. Lincoln has been on the show before, and he's going to be a semi-regular contributor in a segment we've called The Spiritual Transhumanist. We'll be hearing much more about that in upcoming segments. For now, I want to share with you the first in an ongoing series of conversations between Lincoln and I. Welcome, everyone, to Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasella. And with me for today's conversation is Lincoln Cannon. Lincoln is a technologist and philosopher and a leading advocate of technological evolution and post-secular religion. For over a decade, Lincoln has written and presented on topics at the intersection of technology and philosophy, with emphasis on Mormonism and transhumanism. He believes technology always presents both risks and opportunities, and he envisions the ethical use of technology empowering humanity to attain unprecedented global degrees of Vitality, Intelligence, Cooperation, and Creativity. Lincoln, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Really happy to be here with you. So the reason that I want to introduce you to our audience is because you are also on a path of what I think of as convergence, this this convergence of spirituality and technology. And in, in our conversations, we have talked about the perils of technology as a tool of the ego, uh, but but also uh, the reality of the fact that technology is inevitable. It's an emergent property of human consciousness that we make tools. We'll to- we're tool makers, so we're going to do something, right? That's right. And I, I think you're you're uh, you have impressed upon me the you know ignorance and abstinence is not good policy. <laughs> Because <laughs> it doesn't work, right? And we we know that for a fact. Yeah. So um, so with that in mind, I, I want to uh, introduce your thinking and your perspectives to our audience. And um, I know you have a number of places where folks can read more about you, and we'll get to those uh, at the end of the the segment. But I wanted to point out um, and talk with you about a blog post that you. Uh, put up recently with the title, Only from the Wilderness Comes Such Grace. And this post impressed me because you talk about 
your presence in the canyonlands of Utah as a spiritually transcendent experience. Yeah. Yeah, it always has been my whole life since I was a kid uh, growing up and then now with uh, my own family and even um, with friends that I sometimes go out there with, it's always been a, a spiritually transformative and inspiring place for me. And how often do you go? I go as often as I can get away, particularly during the spring, summer, and fall. Um, once in a while, I'll, I'll make it down there during the winter. Um, I don't spend as much t- outside time camping during the winter because the weather is, of course, much harsher yeah. at that point in, in, in the seasons. But, but yeah, I, I try to go often. So, you know, if I were to quantify it, I'd probably go down south uh, three or four times a year. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you get out of being out there in the wild? Well, um, there's kind of a combination of things. One is it a change in routine, of course, from what I do professionally or, you know, from week to week, whether it's professional or just normal family routines or, mm. or social routines. So it's, it's a change. It's a, it's a change of pace, which is nice. Um, another thing that I, I get out of going down there is it reconnects me to memories that I have of being there. Um, in particular, you know, memories of growing up, spending time down there with my family, in particular my father who enjoyed it down there as well. Um, time spent down there with close friends over the years, friends I grew up with, friends I made later in life as well that have spent time down there with me. And then um, another thing which touches back on this blog post that you're calling attention to is that when I, when I get out there um, away from the thick comforts of civilization or the thick the big insulation yeah the, yes you know all this stuff that's around us when i get out there i i gain a renewed sense of appreciation for society and for the artifacts of society and culture and there's there's this sort of strength um that comes to my, to the feeling I have about those artifacts, there, it, it's just it just becomes more it becomes more visceral. You know, the fact that I have this phone and it can reach to send a text message to my wife to tell her, you know what, I'm at the top of Angel's Landing in Zion Canyon and I'm okay. And to just be out there and to be able to make that connection over this distance. Um, it's just there's something powerful about that for me, and it's hard to put into words. Okay, so I heard two things that I want to uh, play with a little bit. One is the the memories, uh, and the other is the uh, connection to technology. So let's uh, let's talk about the memories first. What what do those memories do for you? Oh, what did the memories do? So, you know, the first person that comes to mind when you ask that question is is my father who died of cancer in 1998. He um, he was only 48 years old at the time. I was um, about 21. And when I was an adolescent, he was the leader of my scout troop. Hmm. And he would take us down into the deserts and mountains of southern Utah to do a lot of um, hiking and backpacking and camping. And um, du- 
during those times, it was an opportunity for him to teach me and other boys um, how to handle difficult situations, how to grow up, how to um, how to work as teams, how to prepare for things in advance. And it was also an opportunity for him to express his increasing confidence in my ability to be an adult, to be a mature human being. And um, it was other things that I saw during those times include his, his enjoyment of just kind of taking in the surroundings, the beauty of it, the beauty of it in, in, a, in a kind of a harsh sense in some cases, like the harshness of the terrain mm-hmm. and other yeah. senses, the softness of it as well. He, he loved, he was a photographer. He loved to take pictures of things. And on, on, on some occasions he would take pictures of these panoramic shots that might just show the ruggedness of where we were. But then he, the next moment he'd be turning around, taking a picture from two inches away of, of a flower, mm-hmm. a tiny flower that he found. And, and so the interesting thing about that to me is that, is that here we, we go out into this wilderness and here's this person that I care a great deal about and have learned a lot from and, and who, of course, you know, as is common among um, sons and fathers that have good relationships, you know, I want to, to impress him and live up to his expectations. Um, so I'm watching what he does and I'm watching how he interacts with this stuff. And I see him using this really high-tech camera for the time. Mm, right. Yeah. It was a long time ago. <laughs> right. Um, this really high-tech camera in the middle of nowhere to collect impressions of the environment, which in turn he would take back to civilization and share with people, with his family, with his friends, and with himself as memories. So what do the memories do? There's all, you know, there's my memories in my mind. There's the memories in the photographs. Um, they, they, they create connectivity. They, they pull back feelings that uh, that I had that were positive feelings. Um, do they bring Do they bring any challenge? Yeah, they can. They can definitely bring challenges. Memories certainly can do that. You know, um, you, you can. Uh, and at, at this point, the so many years have passed that most of the challenging memories are more humorous than than anything. Like I, I can remember situations with other boys where our lives were in danger or when somebody did something stupid or mean to another person while we were camping. And, you know, at the time, maybe they were really frightening or really they could have made me angry or whatever. And now looking back on it at my childhood, it's just kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's how, you know, as time passes, we kind of just laugh or cry around things. They are, the, the feelings aren't as, as, you know, They're not as immediate. They're not as immediate, not as um, consuming, maybe as they as they were at the time. Yeah, but yeah it, it can definitely cut both ways. It can be good memories. It can be humorous. It can be just kind of sometimes some sad memories. Like you know, with my father, I miss my father. He's dead. Yeah. Um, and and so those memories, you know, pictures of him, pictures of places we were together, pictures that he took. Uh, of me or of other things, those those bring back memories about him that I'm fond of, that I value, um, that remind me of the relationship. And again, relationships are, of course, also an artifact of culture, um, as much as cameras are. 
right. where, where there's where there's no culture, there's no relationships, and frankly, there's no humans where there's no culture. Humans, <laughs> humans that live without culture, I, I think they pretty much just die off, right? I, I'm 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 not a professional anthropologist or anything. But I've seen that movie about the guy who lived on the island with a volleyball. And he didn't do so well. <laughs> well, he he invented culture. <laughs> That's right. He invented it. He had a relationship with a with a ball. <laughs> exactly. So, do you do you think that um, this combination of experiences uh, of your father, your relationship with your father, out in the wilderness? in the presence of technology, in the domain where nature has a lot of power and the uh, relatively untimely young death of your father were sort of fundamental in your inclination towards transhumanism? Yeah, there... there... There were earlier things in in how I was raised and educated that were very formative in in my in my path towards identifying as a transhumanist. But those those are certainly very important ones. Um, think of it this way: there out out as you described it, out in the middle of the power of in just this this rough power of nature, massive and often dangerous power well beyond my own. Hmm. I was able to survive because of the artifacts of culture and society. I was able to enjoy it and appreciate its beauty because of those artifacts. And now, even though my father is dead, I'm able to look at him because of artifacts of culture and society um, and see pictures that he took in places where I spent with him and those memories come back more vividly as a consequence of that. And so in a sense, even the technology that we have now is, is a form of resuscitation or resurrection of my father in a limited way mm-hmm. uh, that, that overcomes that raw power of nature and the, even the power of death in a way that, you know, my distant ancestors couldn't have appreciated, couldn't have experienced. And, and so it, in the having the presence of technology, which is the other, the other thing I wanted to explore a little bit, having the presence of technology out there, um, you write, looking at those places in my father's photos, remembering them, remembering him, and the ability to use technology to become more than we are. You, you said... The contrast of social artifacts in the proverbial middle of nowhere inspires me. It's my pioneer ancestors in wagon trains stretching across strange lands. The earth softly glowing as that pale blue dot. And you said something else that I found intriguing. It's your compassion for me at the heart of billions of years of brutal evolution. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so in the same way that we have deserts, that are harsh and we have um, empty, empty places like space itself with earth in the middle of the void. There's also, there's also time. Time is also expansive and potentially very brutal, right? Evolution by natural selection is filled with billions of years of organisms vying to compete to, to survive in their environments and humans are a product of that evolution. And 
you know, not only are we a product of the brutality of evolution, but increasingly humanity is the product of compassion and the choice to cooperate and to work together to flourish as a civilization despite those harsh realities that in which we find ourselves. And, it, so, and in fact, it's it's like um, it's an expression of the grand mechanics of evolution that we have it, that we have compassion. We adopted it so that we could survive and thrive better than we could without it. So you think of uh, of evolution and technology as sort of similar things. Yeah, for sure. In like fact, like I, evolution is a technology in a, in a way. Well, fundamentally, evolution, is, I, I would say that evolution is kind of like a bizarre optimization algorithm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. And that, that optimization algorithm produces outputs, and those outputs um, are initially things like physics and biology, chemistry, you know, very basic things. That biology um, is what gave us our bodies, ultimately, our human bodies, after other sorts of bodies that preceded us. And then that, that evolution continued on another, another level to produce culture in society in a more complex sense. And then that evolution is continuing at a yet higher level to produce what we call technology, although all of the other lower levels are, in a sense, certain kinds of technology themselves, although perhaps not produced in a consciously intentional way like what we normally call technology. So an example of that less conscious technology would be so, you know, did, did, was it intentional when we first, um, I was going to say when we first picked up a stick to reach for something, that was probably the beginnings of intentional technology. So what's a step before that? Was it intentional when the human hand, um, was developed? Yeah. When we got a, when we got a, an opposable thumb, was that an intentional kind of technology? Or for that matter, was language an intentional technology? Maybe Excellent. that's maybe that's a that's a really um, useful place to to park it because it's in the evolution of language that be, we began to I think we began to model, and it's yeah. in the modeling that we can analyze uh, and and create optimizations based yeah. on concepts. And, Cognitive frameworks. That intentional modeling was happening with language. You know, I, I'm I'm of the opinion that you know, of course, language. What is language? It can become very primitive, and still maybe count as language. For example, do do dolphins have language? I think they do. Um, it's much more primitive than ours. Do elephants have language? Do the do the great apes have language? And then you kind of work your way down into more into simpler uh, forms of animal life. Do they have language? I think so. I think there's there's reasonable evidence to suggest there's kinds of language. And then maybe let's go down even further. Do ants have language? Well, there's certainly a messaging system. Yeah, there's definitely communications going on. Yeah. So how you, so I guess we should say human language was maybe uh, an unintentional uh, technology that was a, a fosterer of lots of other intentional technologies. Yeah, and in fact has become the most powerful of our technologies. You know, you and I are right now are are looking at each other um, and listening to each other thanks to ones and zeros being transmitted as language is. It's a form of it's a it's binary is a language, and there's all kinds of meta languages built on top of the binary, whether it's JavaScript or C or right. whatever the languages are that are built on top of it that have been used to code the programs that are allowing you and me to speak at a great distance right now and people to listen to us. That that 
same language is being used to operate machines. So it's not confined to just the software world. It operates machines, which in turn transform the physical world around us. Right. And so we've, we've gotten to a point where the word itself, the language itself, can modify everything, ultimately. It can even modify us with surgical instruments and um, interventions, and we can produce drugs that will change, our, change us chemically and biologically. So there's this, now this feedback loop where our word is changing our environment and changing our bodies. Yeah, it's actually a very interesting philosophical uh, exploration that I'd like to, to have with you at another time. My instinct tells me that in the, the Gospel of John, the first lines of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And I get from that the very deep physics that, you know, that it could also, can also be metaphysics and religion that says everything coalesces around information. That information, that the signal is actually the primordial mover. And, you know, allegorically represented in the Bible as the word uh, and lots of other ways of interpreting it, but at, the, at, its, at its very deepest physics, it's the language of the universe that caused the emergence of structure and form. I like that a lot. Yeah, and, and as you know from past conversations together, there there's definitely a rabbit hole of interesting things that I'd love to talk about along those lines. So so we'll do that in uh, in upcoming segments. So awesome. before we before we break, I, I we're we're just about out of time, but I do want to just touch on this one thing uh, from this blog post. What do you say to folks who would imply or who feel? that the presence of technology in the wilderness is actually a detraction from the experience, that the connectivity that, that we have, the ability to send texts from the middle of nowhere or have, have phone conversations from the middle of nowhere somehow is an intrusion on the majesty and beauty of those places. I think they could be right for themselves. Um, although most of them will be inconsistent in the way they describe it, is my experience. So, for example, the, a person who may say, oh, I'm not going to take my phone out there because that will ruin the experience. Well, that same guy might have $2,000 shoes he's using for rock climbing. Um, or, and he's certainly you know, wearing, certainly wearing uh, clothes. <laughs> that's right. He's probably wearing clothes, and those clothes are expensive. And those clothes are pr- produced by a civilization, a complex civilization, um, that's necessary for producing the kinds of things, the kind of clothing that we have. The kind of clothing that we wear would have been impossible to create a few hundred years ago. Right. And, and so, you know, our reliance on technology is far more pervasive than most of us realize. And then, and then you and I have been discussing about how even um, ultimately we can look at our, our biology and our minds and our words as forms of technology that we didn't intentionally create and the, and the lines blur a little bit there. Hmm. So I guess my response to them is, well, you're going out there and unless you're going out there to, to die, unless you're going out there to commit suicide with an intentional death wish, then you're going out there with what you believe will empower you to overcome nature. 
you're not going out there to be killed. It's interesting you said overcome, and one might counter that with or be in harmony with. Yeah, that's fine, except that there are elements in nature that want to kill you. And there are elements in nature that may not want to kill you, but that's very certainly um, with a very high degree of probability will kill you unless you mitigate their risk. So the, the want side is, you know, maybe the grizzly bear who's hungry. <laughs> the, the very high probability that it would kill you unless you mitigate the risk might be something like a snowstorm, a snowstorm. So I mean, na- nature is not nature is not trying to make you thrive. And some of nature is intentionally trying to kill you. And so when you go out into nature, um, there is a certain amount of overcoming that you should, if you don't intend to have a high risk of dying, you should plan for and account for and prepare for. And almost everybody who goes out into nature does do that. I know very few people who kind of go out and say, eh, if I die this time, it's okay. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, we're out of time for this segment. Um, is there, uh, what can, for folks that want to learn more about you and your work, um, what's the best place for us to direct them? Good place to go would probably be my personal website, my personal blog. You can find that at lincoln.metacanon.net or even easier, probably just Google my name and it will be the first search result, Lincoln Cannon. Um, that's a Cannon with two ends. Well, three that's ends, correct. two in the middle yeah. and one on the end. That's correct. (laughs) All right, Lincoln, I look forward to having more conversations with you uh, on future segments. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. Finally, today, I wanted to share with you a little of my spontaneous musings. I was recently traveling from California to Utah and back, and the Nevada desert had its way with me. I stopped to rest, and, well, here's my reflection on a moment of freedom. I'm uh, about halfway between Wells and Elko in Nevada on I-80. Interstate 80. It runs through some amazing open land. And I have to say, you know, the it is it it is in one sense extremely rough harsh terrain feels barren looks barren but the sky never looks barren sky always looks so full the way the clouds move the way they're shaped the sun the the way the sun shines on the mountains and on the clouds the way the shadows of the clouds project onto the mountains there's something about being out here always moves me. The drive is long from my home in California to my my friends in Utah. 
But when I stop and take the time to rest and absorb the landscape and let the land and the sky have its effect on me. It, it doesn't feel so tiring. And you know, it's a little, it's lonely out here too. But somehow, even when I feel a little lonely, so lonely. I don't feel alone. I feel blessed. I feel connection to this to the clouds and to the sky and to the mountains, to the to the land. And you know, there's you can hear the traffic noise, there's trucks going by and bother me here. It it feels like I don't know, some kind of, I, I I have some kind of uh respect for the works of man in this environment. I'm here because I have a beautiful car and the resources to power my car so that I can travel and a road to travel on this experience comes to me through the works of man I think it's good for me to travel through places like this it makes me less tense and less of technology makes me feel a little more humble and respectful and grateful for the ingenuity of people and the wealth of this country that I live in that's blessed me so richly. I'm not separated from the land. The wind blows in my face, caresses my body. I hear the noise of the trucks, the traffic. And it'd be nice if for an hour it were silent. But even still, I can hear the birds. Stopping on these long trips, declaring myself to not be in a rush. 
something I experience very often. You know, this 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 unobligated, unfettered moment. I really like it. treasure it actually there's one lone raven soaring in the sky don't don't often see a raven by itself you usually see it see them in pairs or or more but this one It's flying right towards me. And that's so lovely. Hello, brother. Beautiful day, eh? It's a beautiful day. You look lovely up there. How's the breeze? Great, eh? This is beautiful. Oh, you're so cool. Thanks for dropping in. You know, that's the thing, right? I can guarantee you that that raven that just came by and flew over my head and over my car was actually delighted me to see something unusual and something not threatening and something inviting and welcoming if only just observe that's freedom that's freedom A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi C at tarotbyhic.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. April flowers bring May flowers. Beltane is coming up. And with it, the delirious delight of spring in full flower. I seem to say it every time, but I'll say it again. Get out there in nature. Soak up the sun, the flowers, the fertility of this magical planet. Enjoy it. Share it. Protect it with your heart and soul. And... As a reminder, visit our new home, 
thisisconvergence.com for archives, updates, and extras. Thanks for joining me. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carasella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney. Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m.